Welcome to Society Case Files, a podcast covering books, movies, music, writing, and more. I'm your host, Robert Hazelton, and today I'll be talking about the world of Society Case Files, where it's been and what the future holds. I'll also touch on some artistic tips, chat about the cat who pawed the cultist, then we'll be covering my thoughts on a couple new H.P. Lovecraft pieces of entertainment that came out recently. Thanks for stopping by, and here we go. Society Case Files came about in 2006. Uh, I basically wanted to create something brand new. I'd been writing for a long time, but I didn't really have a a thing. I wasn't uh, working on any specific franchise, and I'd just been doing one-offs, mostly short stories, and a couple of novels that would later become uh, part of the Glamour and Shadows series. The problem was is that uh, everything I came up with kept being way too cliche for my taste, kept finding myself basically trying to rewrite either movies I loved or books that I had read a long time ago and, and vaguely forgot about. So what first happened, and I'll just tell the story because it's kind of ridiculous, I sat down and came up with a uh, initial couple of characters that would be in the first book. And I even went so far as to write the first chapter before I really came to terms with the fact that I was uh, rewriting Underworld. Uh, let me explain. So my first character was going to be a uh, vampire. She was going to be stoic and, uh, you know, hardcore, badass. Uh, basically just thinks Celine from Underworld because that's exactly what I made. I think she was even British back then. And uh, the way that I thought I'd contrast her is by giving her a partner who was a fairy. He was uh, a womanizer, just out of control, always looking for a fun time, that kind of thing. Uh, Bringing those two characters together, my idea was they'd be like a cleanup crew, basically, trying to uh, work with a supernatural organization that prevented humanity from finding out about monsters, basically. So chapter one began with her stepping out of a cave where she had just finished uh, taking care of a group of monsters that were causing some trouble. And now she's uh, got a phone call, tells her she's got a new partner. And uh, from there, all the traditional nonsense that you would expect from uh, that that uh, personality clash. So I wrote it. I read back and I just didn't like it. Um, it just wasn't it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. And the character was just, again, way too much like um, another character. So I set out to create something brand new. And the way I did that was after getting over the initial, I'm just going to throw this all away and forget all about it. I started this process that I've been, well, I'm sure I haven't invented it, but um, I have not read about it, and that is just twisting the characters. Um, Basically, it is taking specific traits of those characters and just altering them until the character is unique. So in the case of Beatrice, that was her name, she was the vampire, um, I still wanted her to be this, I still wanted that character to be the straight character in the sense that they were the ones who were were, were serious and drove the investigations. Um, but what I also wanted to do was, was really turn something on its head. So I started thinking about what kind of monsters I hadn't seen in urban fantasy settings before, at least as often. And that's how I came up with an incubus. So um, incubus characters are male. So I altered her gender and I made her an incubus. And this way, I also came up with a little bit of a backstory in the sense that she was now uh, a he, and he had lived a very hedonistic lifestyle up to the point where he decides to become serious. So now I've got this character who is quite different than Beatrice because she was all stoic in my uh, original write-up. I mean, exactly like the Underworld character, just no fun at all. No personality, essentially. 
With this guy, he had an excessive personality as a younger man, and now that he is a detective, he is very serious, but he still has that playfulness going on. In fact, he can never completely escape his uh, nature. And so that allows him to be flirtatious and silly sometimes, but still uh, a pretty focused character. I also didn't uh, want him to be overly physically capable. So unlike the Beatrice character, Algiers Stanton, who is the Incubus, uh, is not actually as tough as she was. I mean, he can hold his own, but he's not a physical powerhouse. He's more of a thinker, a little bit of a manipulator, and he's a much more social character. So that's where he comes from. So now I need to work on his partner. I still wanted the male-female dynamic, which I, I seem to see uh, everybody jumps on board on that. So I didn't go very original there. But uh, my secondary character remained a fairy. And this time I just wanted to darken her up a bit. So I changed the gender again. So now we've got the female character. And her name was Ophelia Dupree. And unlike Algiers, she is all fun. And... The reason she is, is because she is trying to compensate for what she did in her past. See, when she came to Earth, she uh, she met a necromancer who took her in, and she was very naive, and he turned her into an assassin. So now we've got this very light, fluffy character who has had to kill a lot of bad guys, and now she's a detective because she just simply can't handle that anymore. And so she compensates by making jokes, a lot of pop culture references, and it makes her a lot more fun as a character, um, especially when she contrasts with Algiers. So that is how I came up with the two characters. The world itself was already pretty well designed in the sense that I had a group of supernaturals. They prevent the humans from finding out about them. And then eventually they evolved into a group that was a little bit more snug, for lack of a better term, in the fact that they actually tried to prevent the world from being ended and save humanity here and there. So that is the foundation of society case files. That's how it came into existence um, and how I built uh, my first book, which was Glamour and Shadows. So I really wanted to keep Glamour and Shadows a dynamic experience. So the second book didn't jump right back in with Algiers and Ophelia. In fact, it started with a brand new character named Vincent Prasaro, who is a vampire who owns a game store and has prophetic dreams. He happens to know Ophelia because she comes into his shop all the time to buy comics and games and that sort of thing. And between the first book and the second book, she's had a bit of trouble with the society itself. And so she's not really working at that time, which then allowed me to have a whole investigation with a brand new fish out of water. And the fun part of that book is that the two characters are a lot alike in some ways, but Vinny is even more ridiculous with the pop culture and movie references. And Ophelia is forced to be the, the straight character when she's never wanted to do that before and never really been good at it. The only time she's ever had to be like that is when she was working as an assassin. So, and that's just how the stories go. The third book even goes to a totally different direction where Algie and Ophelia don't show up until much later and it focuses on a wizard. So, um... Ultimately, the series has been able to open up and almost have this sort of Marvel feel in the fact that there's all sorts of heroes running around in the world, and maybe eventually I'll be able to culminate to my own version of the Avengers, but uh, I'm not quite there yet, of course. But uh, right now, it is the culmination of 13 comics and uh, 7 novels. Um, there's a dramatization of Glamour and Shadows that I'm still working on. Episode 3 is just about to come out. 
Um, I'm doing short animated films of the Society Case Files adventures, and uh, we're actually working on a role-playing game as well. So for the most part, I would say that uh, Society Case Files is really launching into an awesome full-bodied world, and uh, it's even got a spin-off, which I'm going to talk about here in uh, just a moment. Now, where Society Case Files sort of detours from just another urban fantasy setting is that I also kind of use it as a platform to uh, show artwork and discuss all sorts of dark, mysterious material, whether it's novels or movies or whatever else. And uh, you could see that on my Facebook page and you could see that in the website that really do use this as a as a sort of overarching umbrella that covers all the material I do, whether it be reviews or writing or all the animation. Even our music has something to do with this sort of gothic setting. So in any event, that is what Society Case Files is all about. And I'm really glad you're here. And if you've made it this far, let's start talking about the cat who pawed the cultist. So the basic idea behind The Cat Who Pawed the Cultist is that it's a young adult book set in the world of the Society Case Files, and it's about a young witch who encounters a guardian cat, or what I call them is the Mao, and they go on an adventure together to prevent a dangerous wizard from opening a magical portal into another dimension. So the idea actually didn't come from anything... Uh, specific to the series. It actually came about because I was messing around with uh, book covers. Um, I decided I wanted to make a book cover with a cat. So I took a picture of my cat, Percy, and I made this crazy book cover with this sort of Victorian England background, and I was going to sell it as a pre-made book cover. Now, most of the time when you sell pre-made book covers, you have a uh, temporary title uh, book cover or book title tends to get kind of uh, old so you just make up random stuff and without even thinking about it I just typed the cat who pawed the cultist so I made the book cover and it was kind of cute and I just was staring at it and I'm thinking why am I not writing that book and then I had to start thinking well where would this fit you know is it a savant diary book which we'll talk about some other time or is it a standalone? Or could it somehow fit in the Society Case Files world? So there's already a guardian cat in the Society Case Files books. It's in the, uh, he shows up in the Midnight Turn uh, very briefly, I think, as a footnote. And his name is Barry. He's the black kitty that lives in the Holstrom Sanctum. So it wasn't a big stretch to make this, uh, this book work. So I basically... Uh, started out by creating a, a vague outline um, and it involved uh, my character Charlotte uh, encountering the cat while she was out uh, walking home from the uh, to the sanctum and that's where she uh, inadvertently stops a portal from being opened with the help of her uh, new friend Blaze. Um, he's a ginger tabby. Uh, you would uh, be able to see all of the inspirations for him on my Instagram. It's my Percy cat. He is uh, definitely the inspiration for the way that the cat acts and uh, the, the mannerisms he conveys. They're all straight from my actual cat. And uh, basically, they, uh, they, they link up after that. And they go back to the sanctum and they try and figure things out. Because they're pretty darn sure that this wizard is not going to just give up. So... Once they get into it, then we meet her friends, and she's got a couple of uh, companions who are um, also magic users. 
and uh, they all start their investigation together. It's a much lighter story than the other ones. Um, There's not as much gore, there's not as much violence, and it's a lot more about these kids kind of coming to terms with what they could be doing when they get out of school, what their magic might actually require them to do. Um, The book is currently available for 99 cents because it is the start of a new series, the, uh, the Sanctum Guardian series. Uh, the next book does have a title. It is The Cat Who Bit the Demon. It's going to introduce a new Mao named Simon, and he'll be hanging out with a descendant of the Scarlet Pimpernel. So I'm going to continue with that young adult. I'm going to continue keeping it lighthearted, and uh, it'll be uh, quite a bit of fun. So, uh, you know, moving away from that just a moment, uh, part of the future of the society is that there is another society book on the way as well, another adult version and this one will actually be about a werewolf. It'll be the first in the series that I touch on a, sh- a shapeshifter as a main character. So if you're a fan of shifter lore and culture, you might really enjoy my take on that one. Uh, but it's it's a little ways out because I haven't actually started it yet. And I only vaguely know what it's going to be about. So also, we're still working hard on the Society Case Files comic series. Uh, we're on season two right now. The third issue is coming to a climax. You can check all of that out at www. Societycasefiles.com. You'll find updates, artwork, excerpts, and links to the different places to check everything else out. As far as the Glamour and Shadows radio drama I had mentioned earlier, it had been on the back burner for a while, but episode three is just about done, and I have almost finished writing up episode four. Um, the goal of that, of course, is that each season of the radio drama will be a different book in the series until we get through them all. They're fully dramatized. There's sound effects. If you've heard Dark Adventure Radio Theater, you know where my inspiration came from on there. So they're a lot of fun. The first two episodes are available on my Kofi site uh, or Coffee. I don't know exactly how we're supposed to be saying that. But in any event, uh, you can uh, find that stuff there. And uh, we'll be talking about that a lot more in the future. And the final thing I want to talk about for the Society is the role-playing game. So right now we're working on the role-playing game, and I can't really talk too much about the system and all that. However, it's a much more story-driven concept. I've already done a whole lot of writing for it. I've done the entire history of the Supernaturals. Um, I've written up the history of the Society. I've come up with all of the different... uh, divisions of the society that sort of operate and support detectives. Um, The first book will definitely be about uh, having the characters do detective work and uh, try to stop monsters from doing terrible things. So I'm really excited about that one. I can't wait to share it. Most of the art is also done. And uh, even if you don't play role-playing games, it's going to be a fantastic supplement to the uh, series. So I really look forward to sharing that. And uh, I just, I can't wait for it. But uh, we're still pounding out the, uh, the different system uh, stuff. So look forward to that in the very near future. Again, straight on my website, you'll find all the information and some uh, tidbits and sneak peeks as well. So look forward to that in the near future. And uh, always check back on those sites. I update them pretty frequently. Uh, let's move on to uh, some artistic tips. So, being an artist is pretty tough, and it really doesn't matter if you're doing it full-time, treating it like a hobby, or whatever. Starting a project and seeing it through to the end can be a real challenge. I mean, I know this for a personal fact. I have started and stopped dozens of times, believe me. Uh, There's a ton of reasons we don't get something done or finish something, whether it's just we're too busy, 
or we can allow ourselves to be gobbled up by the distractions of, say, the internet or binge-watching Netflix, whatever the case may be, we have a million excuses as to why we don't follow through and conclude whatever it is we're working on. Um, I personally have studied writing and art extensively. I've read tons of great books. I've just been inundated in the field to gather the best understanding I could about what I needed to do to successfully complete quality projects, and at least to my standards. Um, I'm going to share some books that uh, helped me the most, and uh, they're, they're actually pretty general. They can help you with whatever kind of art or project you are currently working on. Uh, in fact, he markets it to entrepreneurs as well as writers. So these can help you at your day job, your house projects, painting, writing, making a movie, whatever it is you're doing. This definitely is going to help. Uh, it's a relatively short book by Stephen Pressfield called The War of Art. Uh, you can pick it up on Kindle for 10 bucks. Uh, it's available on Audible and at most bookstores. I actually picked up a physical copy over at uh, Barnes & Noble, and it's been by my desk every single day that I work as a reminder of what I learned from it. Uh, the basic gist of this is that uh, we constantly do battle with something called resistance every single day. It's an internalized force fed by external elements that ultimately do the same thing. They prevent us from getting things done. Resistance can be anything from a video game to a TV series we decided to binge, to surfing the internet, all the stuff I mentioned above. And it comes built in with justifications as to why we did all those things rather than getting to work. Uh, the next level of this thing is the voice in our heads fighting against us, telling us that what we're working on sucks, or that we're not professional, so why bother? Uh, these kind of messages, whether they come from skeptical friends or family, or literally are just your own insecurities coming to roost, uh, are resistance, and they're hampering your path forward. Um, there's a great quote by Henry Rollins that I kind of live by, and uh, I love it. And it goes, there's no such thing as spare time, no such thing as free time, no such thing as downtime. All you got is lifetime. Go. And uh, you'd be surprised how much you can get done if you don't watch that third episode of a show or instead spend that 45 minutes writing. Uh, you'd be surprised how far in any project you can get if you only played one level of a video game and didn't binge for 12 hours. The key isn't to abolish things that are relaxing or mindless. We need those to recharge, to find inspiration, to experience something that helps boost our creativity. But the process of making something has to continue and should always have a place in our day-to-day -day routine. So, Roger Zelazny, who is the author of The Chronicles of Amber, suggested that a burgeoning writer should always write at least two lines every single day. Sometimes you'll write more, sometimes you'll do your bare minimum, but you're always making progress. That was my routine when I first began writing, and it really did work. I've got to say, I have written a lot more because I stuck to that general rule, always write two lines. Progress is the important part. You'll develop your own groove, you'll create your own pace, and, and when you do that, that's when your projects will seriously start to take flight. Stephen Pressfield writes a lot of historical fiction, but as of late, he's actually been doing these self-help books for artists. Uh, the War of Art is the first one, and I recommend it right away. I mean, that is something that you should practically own this very second. Buy it on Amazon while you're listening to this, in fact. Uh, the second one in his series that I read was Do the Work, and it basically... Uh, it wasn't nearly as impactful for me 
as the other one because I already was following the tenets that he suggests in this one. But it does really reinforce it. And if you need that extra push, that boost, uh, it's a good one to go to. Um, the next one after that is called uh, Turning Pro, which um, I don't believe I've read. It certainly doesn't have an impact if I did. Um, apparently, he's even got more than that, but uh, those are the only three that I have actually checked out and and uh, done any research on. Um, if you read his book, The Legend of Bagger Vance, you can see a lot of the principles he talks about coming out in the story through the analogy of golf. Uh, apparently, he's a huge golf fan. Uh, the topic itself wasn't something that interested me overly, but uh, the way he told it grabbed me right away. In any event, if you're serious about any sort of artistic journey, Pressfield's books are a no-BS way to overcome some of the hardest steps, namely finishing the project. I highly recommend him, but uh, but know this. He, he does not hold back, and uh, he does utilize some profanity in his work. So if that kind of thing offends you, then then just go into it knowing that he he really does take this from a from a hardline stance. If you don't know anything about him, Stephen Pressfield uh, was a uh, military guy. He got out and wanted to get into writing. He did some screenplays. Um, one of his screenplays was a Steven Seagal movie called Above the Law. Another one was that uh, ill-fated King Kong movie. Um, I can't remember which one. Uh, he has a really funny story about it in uh, The War of Art. But he's a great example of somebody who really struggled their way from pretty close to nothing all the way up to a very successful author. So, again, I highly recommend him. So let's move into some Lovecraft stuff. I've always been a huge fan of the Cthulhu mythos, and uh, I actually like most of the silly-ass movies that are based on his work, even if they are incredibly uh, divergent from what uh, what he wrote down. However, that said... Um, Some of the best examples of adaptation for Lovecraft's work comes from the folks at Dark Adventure Radio Theater. Uh, They create radio dramas based on the short stories and novels, and they've even done some of the Chaosium role-playing supplements as as dramas. I'm going to tell you straight up, these guys are freaking geniuses. Um, They have inspired me more than I can possibly tell you to to venture into that arena of uh, radio drama. The production values are absolutely incredible, and their voice actors are superb. Uh, As of this show, they have 22 productions you can pick up, with a new one just announced. Um, I have some favorites, but their latest, just released at the end of June, is The Lurking Fear. Uh, They sell them digitally, but if you pick up the CD versions, you get a bunch of props. Uh, For instance, with The Lurking Fear, you get a map of upstate New York, a newspaper account of what's happening up there, uh, some press credentials, and a uh, report from the medical examiner. Um, all from the uh, basic story uh, that they're telling. Uh, the CD versions of this uh, of this particular story would set you back twenty two uh, twenty five, uh, while the digital copy um, without any of the props and stuff is about twelve fifty. Uh, for a longer experience, you can pick up the Masks of Nyarlathotep, uh, which is a six CD set, and that's seventy bucks. I will tell you this, it's freaking huge. It's really well worth it. It's one of the better Chaosium RPG stories, and they tell it in a just incredible way. It's very long. Uh, It's very well done. They also did uh, one called Brotherhood of the Beast. I can't remember which uh, module it's based on, but I've listened to that one all the way through and just adored it. Um, The characters they came up with were just really rich, and they felt like they fit right into the world of, uh, of Lovecraft. 
So I recommend these productions without any hesitation. They're absolutely magical. They're pretty much any story you like from Lovecraft, uh, and they're ready to go today. Uh, Innsmouth, Reanimator, Dunwich, Call of Cthulhu, Rats in the Walls, uh, they're here, and they're ready to go. And they do them like period pieces, complete with commercial jingles and dramatic announcers and all that great stuff. So if you haven't tried them yet, be sure to give them a shot. Uh, their website is store.hplhs.org, and I'll include that in the uh, description down below. Um, moving on to the second piece of Lovecraft Entertainment, I wanted to talk about a game called The Sinking City by Frogware. Uh, they're the guys who brought us the Sherlock Holmes games uh, that uh, even way back they had one that uh, involved the Cthulhu mythos. I think it was called Sherlock Holmes and the Awakened. If you've tried any of the Lovecraft video games, you know they're pretty hit or miss, just like the movies. Um, I don't know, maybe you've tried the Call of Cthulhu game that came out back in October of 2018. I think that Sinking City is doing exactly what that game promised it was doing. Um, I've been enjoying the heck out of it. The atmosphere is amazing. Uh, it's enough so it's a, it's enough scary that I've actually been startled on several occasions. Uh, some of the voice acting leaves a bit to be desired, but it's not nearly as bad as the Call of Cthulhu game. Uh, it's not pulling me out of the game every time someone opens their mouths, at least. Because let me tell you, the first time I heard someone talk in that Call of Cthulhu game, uh, I was wondering if I was being punked. The role-playing elements in this one are also put to a lot better use. The powers you gain are actually useful, whereas the one in Call of Cthulhu did not nothing, really. Uh, they opened up paths to get around obstacles slightly differently, but um, when you look at the different endings, you find out that doesn't really matter all that much, which kind of sucks. In this one, you uh, you gain uh, experience through your investigations and fighting monsters, building up knowledge points uh, to spend on skills, which do things like uh, increase the amount of bullets you can carry, uh, make you harder to kill, that sort of thing. Now, that's not to say that you can... Uh, run in and call of duty these monsters i actually shot one who um didn't die right away he charged over and one shot me so it's still a lovecraft story in the sense that the monsters are really not to be messed with i'd call it an unqualified success if i compared it straight to call of cthulhu and that's all i did uh, but it's not without some faults i've encountered a lot of bugs on the playstation 4 version uh, there are moments where they don't care really uh about your immersion for example if you are in the boat and you get close to a landing area, you hit a button, and you just teleport to the dock. You don't see your character getting out of the uh, boat or any of that stuff. There's no animation for that. They're just like, you know what? Just get on with the gameplay. Uh, monsters sometimes glitch into the walls. They get stuck, and actually so does the player. <laughs> it's kind of a free-for-all in that regard. And uh, in an investigation game, that can get pretty rough because you're looking in all these nooks and crannies, so the chances of a nearly game-breaking trap are actually pretty high. Um, you know, if you go around a set of stairs that they didn't anticipate you going to for some strange reason, uh, you can actually get stuck and have to reload the game. The deduction system is pretty fun. You've got this crazy supernatural otherworld site that sort of recreates the, uh, the scene of the crime for you as you find the clues. And uh, it's pretty fun. I can tell you I've already played it twice as long as it took to finish Call of Cthulhu, and I'm not even near the end. So ultimately, I'd say that if you're a fan of adventure games, you'll probably like this one quite a bit. 
Um, you do have to have a bit of an affection for Lovecraft to really care about the story, uh, because some of it is told by having to read very long documents um, without any voice acting to uh, support it. So you'll be doing some reading, and uh, you've got to really care if you want to get through all the lore they offer. Unfortunately, PC players will have to use the Epic Store to buy it. I know that's a deal breaker for a lot of people. I picked it up on the console for some couch gaming. It's a lot easier for my wife and I to experience a video game if we play them out in the living room. So she's a huge fan of Lovecraft as well. Um, I can tell you it looks great on a 4K TV. So I'm not sure what benefit you'll get from trying it on the PC. But uh, if that's what you've got, then... uh, Try it out and uh, send me a comment. Let me know if it's amazing or if there's some super cool thing that you discovered that uh, I'm missing out on. I would like to hear it because when it comes down to price, maybe I'd get it that way too. But anyway, let's move on to another game that I can wholeheartedly recommend without any hesitation and I have practically zero complaints about. And that game is Cultist Simulator. This is a very deceiving game. If you've seen it before, then it looks like some kind of casual card game where you could just play it for a couple hours and uh, put it down. Nothing could really be further from the truth. This is one of the more hardcore games I've actually played. I thought that I would just grab it. I thought I might even return it after my hour and a half of gameplay because I didn't really know what to expect. What happened afterwards was a level of addiction that I'm almost ashamed of. Um, I ended up putting a grand total of 30-something hours into the Steam version and another another 20 hours or so on the iPad. I, I can't be uh, certain on that. Essentially, the goal of the game is to build a cult and then follow through some objective uh, based on almost whatever you want in regards to what the game offers. Uh, some of them are you could uh, want to uh, pursue immortality, create a god in the new game uh, plus mode, uh, become a monster. There's all kinds of stuff to do. And how you start the game, it's it's a little roguelike in that way. Uh, you have legacies. So the very first time you play it, you're just some schlub who works at a hospital and uh, you get fired and then you kind of get into the occult that way. Um, another way is you can be this uh, wealthy dilettante sort of person who... Uh, starts out with more money than everybody else and has some contacts that leads them down a path to uh, become a cultist. And then there's uh, new legacies that they release uh, as well. They just released a priest one and a ghoul one, which neither of which I've tried, but I got them both. The reason is, is that I had just finished a huge playthrough and I was a little fatigued, I got to admit. There's so much to do in this game. It's insane. And they don't really give you a tutorial because part of the fun of the game is trying to learn what the heck to do. So you can read the cards and they kind of give you an idea. But I'll tell you, the first three playthroughs I did, I died horribly. All because I just had no idea what was happening. At this point, I have a very firm grasp of it. In fact, I was streaming it the other day and somebody came on who'd played a lot. And they were like, wow, I have nothing to offer you. I was hoping to hoping to help. So that made me feel a little better about my about my skills on it. I can tell you the iPad version lacks some of the cool supplements that have come out for the PC. At least they did when I played last. Uh, one of those is the ability to change your uh, hideout. That kind of sucks. But uh, if you're playing it on the PC or the Mac, you've got a ton of stuff uh, that you can do in it. 
Uh, ultimately, I recommend it because it is a dirt cheap game at only 20 bucks. You can find it on sale all the time. I got it uh, for a really good price at um, Green Man Gaming. Um, you can also get it for your iPad, like I said, if you want to do some uh, some mobile gaming with it. It works on the iPhone. So all around, the Cultist Simulator, thumbs up. Definitely try it if you love Lovecraft, if you like Creepy. It has everything you need. So that's it. Thank you very much for listening to the show. I appreciate you stopping by. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, be sure to check out our website and keep track of the schedule. You can find us at www.societycasefiles.com or www.roberthazelton.com. And don't forget to follow or support the project at ko-fi.com slash societycasefiles. The next episode will air in a week. Uh, Look forward to some interviews, movies, and more as we delve deeper into the Society Case Files. 